Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. We're back. Welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Travis Patton. Before I introduce Travis Patton, let me tell you a little bit about why we decided to invite him on the show. A couple weeks ago, we had our good friend Morgan Aldis join us to speak about the Beatitudes in the context of an alchemical ascension text. It was kind of deep, and it was fun. We had a great time. Uh, We compared the Beatitudes as this ladder that we were climbing in context of the Mountain of the Adepts, which was, again, an alchemical text. And I think we had a lot of fun with that. Well, today, to kind of continue that motif, we've invited Travis, who's quite a classical scholar, and we're going to speak a little bit about classical contemplation and specifically ascension texts in the classical tradition. And hopefully from this, we can gain some insights and help to enhance our continued understanding of what God has in store for us as contemplatives, as Latter-day Saints, as his children. So just to begin, Travis, why don't you just tell us just a little bit about yourself? I know earlier you told me, you know, there's nothing special about me, but just tell us who you are and what makes you tick. Uh, yeah, so I, and I'll, I'll take, uh, qualify this statement about being a classical scholar. Just a classical enthusiast is what I'm more comfortable saying. Scholar in the older sense of the word, not in the, uh, not so much in the modern sense of the word. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've been fascinated with classical, uh, you know, with classical literature and, you know, the philosophical literature in particular. My, uh, you know, my main area of competence is in Plotinus and uh, the Neoplatonic tradition as it goes into a continuation from Plato and how it goes into the Middle Ages and into Christianity in general. And I've also been interested in, in Ascension texts in, in, in the broader spectrum for you know over 20 years so that's kind of my area here you know i mean i i'm just a person who really enjoys and loves uh, to study these things cool how'd you get interested tell us how you got interested in ascension text you know i don't know i've i've tried to figure that out i've tried to it's it's it's, it's been so long that uh, that i can't think i think it's probably um, probably through Nibley, you know, when I was uh, in my early twenties and, and, uh, late teens, I guess I read a lot of Nibley and that, that's probably where some of this interest came from. But, uh, you know, my, my senior capstone paper for, uh, my bachelor's degree was supposed to be a 15 page paper. And so far I ended up writing 140 some odd pages on, on Ascension texts as they related to, uh, Dante's divine comedy. And that was where, you know, a lot of this foundation came from. Cool. We'll definitely talk more about Dante later. 
So to kind of lead us into a discussion about this topic of classical contemplation and ascension texts in the Greek tradition, why don't you tell us a little bit about just the, the larger subject itself of descent and ascent and how that played into Greek thought? So the, you know, the idea of ascension and, uh, and the corresponding, the, the preliminary descension is, is an ancient, ancient idea. You know, the idea in general being that, you know, we, we started in the divine presence and we have to return to it. This is found through many different uh, religions and areas in, of antiquity. We find it in Egypt. We find it in, especially, you know, in the funerary literature in Egypt where we have to, where we basically have cheat sheets to help us along the way after we die to ascend, to go through the underworld and back, return back to uh, the presence of the gods and so forth. I mean, that's really one of the oldest religious conceptions that we have that's fully elucidated. And, uh, you know, you have this idea that you have to pass by guardians at different gates and so forth and know the right words. And, uh, you know, some scholars have suggested that funerary texts is not a very proper word for this because that's only incidental that you would actually go through these rituals in life and then you just had a cheat sheet that was uh, included along with your burial to help you along after after death and so forth you know we find ascension texts among the ancient uh, israelites the Ju you know and, and more fully fledged in judaism and islam you know the most famous one in islam of course is the mirage of, of muhammad and then we have other islamic mystics who kind of uh, undertake a similar journey. And then, of course, Christianity, we have all sorts of mysticism. And it often, you know, it generally takes the idea of, you know, in later medieval and later Christian mysticism, kind of a, a, a union with God, a return to the, you know, the true origins of the self and so forth. So, I mean, there's a lot of different forms this takes, and, and they're, it's really interesting to see the correspondences and the differences. I think when most people think of Greek religion, you know, they think of, of the Greek gods on Mount Olympus and, and all that stuff. But there's, there's a different religious, there's, a, there's an epistemology, there's a fully formed epistemology in, in Greek religion that seems to be a little bit separate from that kind of state religion of the gods of Olympus. Can, can you help us there as, as a way to form a correspondence between at least our thought patterns and what we understand as our our religious tradition and how the Greeks understood theirs. We had this discussion a while back about things descending from the one to the intelligences and so forth. Could you kind of outline or map that out for us? Yeah, so philosophy in the ancient world was in, in many ways what we, it, it was closer to what we would think of as religion. You know, there, it was a way of life. You know, philosophy in antiquity was not just arguments about the nature of being, about how we understand things, about language and so forth, a lot of the things that we discuss in modern philosophy. Um, in antiquity, there was, nothing, there, was, there was no separation from philosophy and, you know, the shaping of one's character, the way one would live. When we look at, you know, Plato's Academy and so forth, we know that they had a lot of uh, moral regulations, they had a lot of ethical regulations, they had even things on how much you should sleep, what type of foods you should eat. And then even the way that they studied the dialogues, the Plato's dialogues, they had to do that in a specific order, culminating in, in, the, uh, in the symposium. And so everything was a preparation to shape one's character. And when we really get into the spiritual experiences of the Greeks, 
we see how tied up they are in in philosophy, how the goal of philosophy for many of the ancient Greeks really was a sort of knowledge of God. And more than that, I mean, a, a sort of union with God, a, a contact with the divine, which is so foreign to the way we think of philosophy and even the way we think of ancient philosophy. Right? I mean, we, we, we tend to think of ancient Greek religion as kind of this worship of like the Olympian deities, like you say, and philosophy being an abstract sort of thing divorced from daily life and, and conduct, but it's not that way at all. Yeah, in reality, the the abstraction of philosophy, as you call it, is a medieval phenomenon, right? It's it's having everything to do with with Christianity. It's after the advent of Christianity that that happens, and at the same time, the like you say, ancient philosophy is like religion today. Ancient religion is more about the relationship between man and the state, right? So it's more like I don't know, like what some people think of as patriotism today. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, very much, especially under the Romans, you know, under the Roman Empire, the, you know, you had a very stark division between, you know, the, the, the public religion and then, you know, personal devotion and so forth, the things that went on in the home and everything. But the religion that we think of among the Romans in particular was, you know, state devotion. And, and the Romans were very encompassing and embracing of all sorts of religious beliefs and practices, as long as you recognized you know, the emperor and the Roman gods. That's why the Jews got in so much trouble, because, you know, the Romans were happy to let the Jews worship however they wanted, as long as they would also worship, uh, you know, the gods of the Roman state. And then the Jews refused to do that. And that's what, of course, led to their ultimate quashing by the Romans and so forth. So, so yeah, there is a, uh, there is a big divide there. So the religion of well, the philosophy of the Romans, which was which is more like religion today, was Stoicism predominantly, right? That's and that's something we talked about in our last episode a little bit. Uh, Stoicism, maybe there was some competing Epicureanism and other ideas. So philosophy is what gives people sort of a way of life, right? That it gives you a the instructions or the well the answers to the big questions, so to speak and instructions for how to live your life, morality, most especially the Romans really didn't care much for, the Roman philosophers didn't care much for the physics and the, what we would call metaphysics or the epistemology of philosophy. Really, it was, it was ethics that they cared about. Yeah, and that was, you know, you know, Roman society was highly um, organized and, 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 uh, systematic and rigid and so those sort of things appealed to the to the to the roman mind right i mean we and the middle ages got their greek philosophy through the romans through cicero through seneca and so forth and it was it was only mildly influential obviously it shaped um western philosophy quite a bit western christianity but it was only when the West came in contact with the original Greek sources that we really saw huge spurts of creativity among theology and philosophy in the West. And going back to an earlier point that you brought out about the abstractions, there was a lot of abstract thought in ancient religion, but it was it was always practical, if that makes sense. You know, Plato, for example, they, they studied mathematics. And the idea was not to have any practical applications come out of this, but to teach the mind to deal in abstractions 
so that you could then look at the world in an abstract way and it, and then interiorize abstraction so that you can then separate yourself from physical connections and relationships to be able to withdraw yourself into the richness of the mind and then from there on go in in deeper into you know contemplation right i mean contemplation is 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 based on abstraction to a large extent so abstract thought and argument for the sake of it was never the goal of of ancient philosophy so what would you say travis to the latter day saint listener who when you say separating from the physical and you talk about the middle ages and the influence of greek philosophy on theology to the Latter-day Saint who might be wary of a conversation about philosophy when it comes to the whole idea of the philosophies of men as opposed to scripture. So, yeah, there's... And, and even with the idea that somehow, maybe even the, the great apostasy, the corruption of religion comes because of philosophy. Yeah, so that's a, re- that's a really good... That is a very good question because there is an interesting tension here in that Neoplatonism, in in its sort of a doctrinal and dogmatic sense, is completely antithetical to Joseph Smith's conception of God. You know, for Joseph Smith, what he did with, with religion and with our view of God was bring it down to a very concrete image, right? We have a, a a personal God that's in the same human form as us, and we can comprehend him because he's he's like us, right? And the the God of the Neoplatonists is indescribable. You know, you have this idea of negative theology or apophaticism, which is the closer you get to understanding God, the more you just have to negate his attributes. So you can start by describing God, but as you really get to understand God and you really get close to an understanding of him, all you can start saying is he is not this and he is not that. He is not confined by these. He's not limited. He's not defined until finally all you can say about him is he's the good. He's the pure. He's the, you know, even, you know, the beautiful or, or finally just the one. That's, that's all you can say of him. That seems kind of antithetical and kind of a uh, disturbing to us and it and it should be in a way because it's when you start building a, a philosophy a theology around it then pretty soon you, you you make god so divorced from our own understanding that it makes it hard for somebody to get a close connection to god however that's not how the ancient greeks saw it because they had a, a system for getting close to God in, in, in a way that made that relevant. Well, now we come to the good stuff, right? Let's go into that. Yeah, so maybe we start, because we're talking about ascension and descension texts. So, uh, you know, at least that's, that's kind of our jumping off point here. So if we're talking about ascension and descension texts, we can look at it in, in two different ways. We can look on the macro or the large scale, and then we can look at the micro scale. Right, so let's talk about the macro scale, how, how this works on a sort of cosmic level. Um, Plato starts us out on this path by separating the world that we know from the world of the ideas or the forms. Right, Plato's famous theory of the forms 
which is basically the idea that everything exists in a pure, true state in, on another spiritual level. We look at a table, and we can recognize this as a table, no matter how different the table may be, because we recognize somehow innately there, there's a, this overarching form of a table. So no matter how things change on this earth, we can still have knowledge of them because there's an original template that exists on another level. And so Plato in, in the symposium tells us how, how we can actually ascend to that level. And uh, he's taught this by this mysterious woman called Diatima. And she's teaching him the secrets of love. And one of the things that she does is, is expands the desire of love to really be desire. And what happens is you take your desires and you sort of broaden them out. So you start by loving a single person and you see the beauty in that person. And then you start to expand that. You can see the beauty in bodies. And then you get beyond the physical and you start to be able to recognize the beauty in ideas, in you know, laws, in philosophies. And you start engendering these beautiful discourses as you speak with people that you love. And then pretty soon, your mind gets elevated enough that you can comprehend beauty in its just broadest general sense. You can just contemplate, uh, you get above just individual things of beauty and contemplate beauty in general. And when you're on that state, you're contemplating, you are observing, you're in a higher elevated state. And at that point, you can actually be touched by the true form of beauty. And it transforms you once this happens. And Plato says that, that if anyone is immortal, if any man on earth is immortal, the man who has had that vision is now immortal. And that's as close as, as the ancient Greeks, as Plato in this case, would, would get to saying, you know, you're deified. You are virtually, you know, a, a god or at least a, a form of god on earth. Travis, do you think this is something we can put into practice? I mean, can I, can I take the same path in some sense? Yeah, and I think that's part of the goal of, uh, hopefully we can do that during this conversation. For Plato, it's, it's, it's more abstract. We don't get a lot of, you know, that's a, basically about all we get out of Plato. But uh, Neoplatonism, which really is kind of put into the form we know it by Plotinus, and, and this is 200 years after, after Christ, Plotinus really develops the doctrines of Plato and he, he expands them a bit. So we, we'll get to the practical aspect in a moment, but let me kind of outline Plotinus's theory. So we've already got kind of this, the earthly realm that, uh, that has uh, another sphere above it, which is uh, where the forms exist, right? And the forms kind of inform and give shape to things on earth. And, and that's kind of it. Now, Plotinus develops this more, and he comes up with three hypostases or three levels of existence here. And at the, at the very top is what he calls the one or the good. Um, you know, sometimes he, he calls it the beautiful, but that's about all that you can say of it. You know, in fact, you can't even say that because we're just trying to represent this in our mind. We can't really comprehend it. But we call it the one. And this is like, this overflows. He, he likens it to a spring where the water's just kind of coming out of the spring and overflowing. And it just overflows and continually overflows without losing anything. 
And this first overflowing falls into a level called the intellect or the logos, you know, the logos, the, the word, the, the mind, and so forth. And that's where these Platonic forms and ideals exist. But we still, but the one is still overflowing. So that, so now the realm of the intellect, intellect overflows, and it goes into the world soul, and the world soul is what then goes in and interacts with matter on Earth. It's what gives um, us form. It's what gives everything on Earth form. It is um, the intelligence, the the thing that shapes everything. And world souls, what connects everything on Earth in the physical world. To the highest levels of of being and ultimately to God. Okay, we're gonna have to review. What what are the what are the levels again? Let's so paint, see if we can paint a picture. We don't have any visuals. Yeah, so we start with the one. And it's like the sun that just spreads out its light. It just does it because that's its nature. Or it's like a spring that just puts forth water and just overflows. And and it's perfectly simple, it's pure. Um, you know, I'm reminded of, you know, uh, you know, so Aquinas, when he, uh, you know, he, he's got a, he's got a section on, on the simplicity of God, right? And when he's talking about simplicity, this is what he's saying. It's, it's pure, it's unmixed. You know, there's the old lady who uh, said, oh, I'm going to read some Aquinas and uh, I'll start with something easy, the simplicity of God. By the time she finished a couple paragraphs, she said, well, if this is his simplicity, I don't want to know anything about his complexity. And that's as far as she got. So, so you have this purity, simpli- uh, simplicity. There's nothing mixed with God. But as, as, uh, as it overflows, then it starts separating into different rivers, into different channels. And, and that's how multiplicity comes about. That's, why we have, that's how we can have a single unity at the very top of the chain and uh, multiplicity, a lot of different things going on at the bottom, just because these rays and so forth overflow and expand and then they start separating out into ideas so we have the one at top at the top then we have the intellectual realm and then we have the world soul and that's and the world soul is what mixes with matter on earth and gives it form and intelligence and all that sort of stuff so that in broadly speaking is the descent when we're talking about ascension and descension texts or Anabasis and catabasis. This is the this is the descent of the soul into the world, and so the soul finds itself bound up in matter, and we can't, um, you know, we, we kind of lose track of our true origin. Travis, one of the things that uh, Christopher and I kind of get off on when we see it or or uh, read about it is the similarities between a lot of the origin stories. And as you were kind of painting this picture of the fountain, the the fountain that overflows and separates into various, into multiplicity, I couldn't help but think of Eden. And, you know, the fountain and, and the four rivers coming from Eden and going in different directions. And there's really something to this idea that we all come from a common source and we have this interior understanding of our own spiritual history that's very well connected to other cultures understandings oh i like that a lot yeah i think that's a great a great analogy i mean a great similarity yeah i was thinking about too the 
when you talk about three hypostases and when you talk about the one, I think of God. When you said the Logos, right, this is the word that's used in the Greek New Testament for the Christ. There's something there too, right? Yeah, and now that's an interesting observation because we really have a trinity there in a way, don't we? I mean, we have the one which we would call, you know, God. And even in our tradition, you know, in, in the Christian tradition, God is, you know, kind of unknowable, right? Every, you know, the revelations of God we have come through Jesus. In fact, when Jesus comes onto earth, then that is really when when we get to know God. Otherwise, he's He's somewhat un- unknowable, and then when and and so we have this kind of form of God, and then when Jesus leaves, he says, "I'm going to send you the Comforter," and uh, and the Comforter or the the idea of the light of Christ that permeates everything, you know. And in fact, if we go to DNC eighty eight, which is just you know the the olive leaf plucked from the tree of paradise, the Lord's message to us was how Joseph Smith described this 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 uh, section so i'm, I'm going to start in verse six and read a little bit if i if i can here he that ascended up on high is also he that descended below all things and that he comprehended all things that he might be in all and through all things the light of truth which truth shineth this is the light of christ as also he is in the sun and the light of sun of the sun and the power thereof by which it was made and then, of course, in the moon and the stars and the earth. And the light which shineth, in verse 11, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. The light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. I mean, that is very much a description of, you know, of this uh, world soul, according to Platonism, which is, you know, originally emanates from God, but it's what fills the earth and gives everything form and intelligence and life and so forth. You know, another thing that came to my mind as you were uh, talking about the unity and how maybe the the abstract nature of it might be, you know, a turnoff to us, or it's at least something that's hard to relate to in our world of of diversity and of of duality, right? In our world of duality, I wonder if we can relate that that unity of the one to what we think of as the pre-fall paradise, right? That being in the presence of God and being one with God. And can we get back there? And do, and do these texts have something to say to us about how we might make our way back to God and back into that unity with him? Yeah, I like the way you've, you've phrased that because I've, it's always bothered me the way that in, in, the, in the LDS church that we teach the plan of salvation. You know, we do it linear, linearly, right? We typically start at the left in the pre-existence, we move through the veil to mortality, and then we get split up into one of three, you know, we go to the spirit world and then go to one of three kingdoms. When it's, it's, it's not, I don't think it's thought of it best in that way. I, I like the idea that, you know, it's a descent and it's an ascent, right? We started with God and then we come to earth and then we return 
to God. All right, we we come to be tried and tested to see if we'll will be a uh, you know true to Him, if we'll follow what we're supposed to. But it's it's and that's in its very simplest form, right? But we also know that we're here to be prepared to meet Him. I mean, it, it literally what we do on earth prepares us for the reunion with Him. You know, DNC eighty eight says basically that you know the 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 degree of glory that you get on earth is the same glory that you will receive when you go to heaven, but in its fullness. And this is what the Apostle Paul was teaching in, in, in uh, you know, Corinthians when he's talking about the resurrection. First, he says, you know, there are bodies celestial, there are bodies terrestrial, and then Joseph Smith adds telestial, such so also is the resurrection. Right? He's saying that on earth you have these types of bodies. And that's what Joseph Smith expands in DNC 88, that we actually are getting the glory that we will receive in its fullness right now. And so how do we do that? Well, that's the point of, you know, that's a point of, of religion. And really, um, you know, as DNC 88 also tells us, we are supposed to purify ourselves to see God's face so that we are then prepared to see him when we die. And, and that is the that is the exact philosophy behind the spiritual discipline of of the ancient Platonic school of thought that you have to prepare to die during this life. And the way you do it is you make this ascent, you reachieve connection with the one through your spiritual practices, so that then when you die, you are ready and your soul just becomes reunited with the one again because you've already done it. So this is the idea of philosophy as preparation for death, right? Yeah. A couple of things came to my mind as you were, as I was listening to you. One is when you said tried and tested, these occur for me as alchemy related terms. And so I would refer our listeners back to those two episodes on alchemy that we recorded with our guest Morgan Aldis, with our good friend Morgan Aldis. And the other thing that you said that really turned me on is when you said now, here and now. You know, Joseph Smith told us that, that the whole purpose of our existence is happiness. And he gives a very clear sense that that is not just somewhere else and hereafter, but here and now, that this is where the action is. The, we know that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. So why are we looking for an exit is my question. And I think we can relate this back to this conversation, especially in, in terms of Plotinus, in terms of what we might be able to better relate to as Latter-day Saints and, and what we might maybe relate to less. But still, we're looking for our way back to maybe not necessarily a physical place, but maybe maybe this isn't about metaphysics. Maybe it's about epistemology. Maybe what we're looking to is a realization of who and what we are and where we are. And so it starts with where we are. And if I may jump in too and, and maybe try to form this in, into a question, what I think Chris is saying from what I understand and from our previous conversations is that, you know, matter without form is chaos. That was something that you said in our previous conversation until it's enlivened by the soul. And the world soul is this thing that connects 
all beings with the one. And so from a contemplative point of view, we start to see the one in all enlivened things, in all formation, in all form and being as, as having the influence of God upon us. I'm struck by that connection of the world soul as the thing that connects us with the one because we're both Christopher and I are very nature focused. We we love to be outdoors. We love to feel that connection with God's creation because we feel like in doing so we're experiencing God himself. So is there any connection between in your in your mind or in the in the classical sense the world soul as a spiritual connection with the one and 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 its interplay with the physical elements, all beings, all creation? Yeah, definitely. Um, when, you know, in, in the first verse of Genesis, right, where it says, um, and the world was empty and void, you know, it's tohu vabohu, right? And uh, and then you have this, veruach merahefet al pene hamayim, right? It's just chaotic waters, and then the spirit just hovers, you know, hovers over these waters like a bird trying to, uh, you know, hatch an egg or something. This is you know, the Orphic creation myth also. And then and then it's the spirit that goes, and now you start having form emerge from that. And that is so uh, exactly reflected in, in the Greek view of things. You know, for the Greeks, matter was completely pre-existent. It was always here, but it's chaotic. If it's not evil in itself, then it's very close to being evil in, in a lot of the Greek uh, philosophical traditions. And it's only this world soul that goes into it that takes it out of chaos, that gives it form, and that gives it, you know, intelligence and life and all that sort of thing. But that's the state that we find ourselves in, right? We find ourselves, that spark of divinity, that connection to God is wrapped in this tabernacle of clay. Uh, you know, I'm, I, th- I think of, uh, you know, the Merchant of Venice, when Lorenzo and Jessica are sitting out there and looking at... Uh, you know, the stars and, uh, they're, you know, they're, they hear some music in the house perhaps. And, and, and they're just looking at the stars and he says, um, sit Jessica, look how the floor of heaven is thick and laid with patines of bright gold. There's not the smallest orb, which thou beholdest, but in his motion, like an angel sings, still choiring to the young eyed cherubims, such harmony is in immortal souls. But whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. You know, he's, he's looking out and, you know, the harmony of the spheres, you know, the, the luminaries, the planets and the, and the sun and moon, everything is making music. But we're enclosed in this gross tabernacle of clay and we can't hear it. And that's the Greek conundrum. You know, we have this spark of divinity in it. How do we access it? And this is where this idea of ascent and descent comes in. We've seen the larger form of descent in which the soul's overflowing on a sort of cosmic level and comes down into matter. Um, and, every, and, and all of creation tends towards that soul bringing it back up. But, this, but the individual human has to be engaged in this process too. So philosophers were the ones who recognized this and recognized that they had to go beyond what the physical world showed and what the cares of everyday life presented to them and 
go within themselves to touch that divine spark and get, you know, kind of push through this mortal tabernacle, all the physical things of the body, cares of the world, the distractions in particular, and be able to focus your mind so deeply that you can go into yourself and you almost descend into yourself. You fall into yourself. You descend deeply, deeply into yourself, into the darkness of your own soul. And there you find this divine light. And then you make this contact and it's there you have this ability to ascend up to the realm of the intellect and perhaps even make contact with the one itself. And this is something that, you know, Porphyry, uh, Plotinus's student, says that happened to him, you know, four times. It happened to Plotinus four times while Porphyry was studying with him. So it's, it's not something that is a constant state. It's not something that's easily attained. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux describes it as rara ora parva mora. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a rare thing and it lasts very, it's, it's a passing thing. You have these brilliant flashes of connection with the one, with the divine love and light and so forth. But the thing is, once you have that experience, it completely transforms you and you understand why God is called love, why that is the defining characteristic of him. And you can no longer treat other people the same and you can no longer see other people the same and you can no longer live your life the same way unless the cares of the world pull you back so much again that you forget that moment but once you have it you have to cling on to it so those moments those here and now moments that's what i'm talking about that those are experiences that we can have and i've described those in previous episodes as, as something of my own experience when it comes to well meditation for one, I get those, I call them glimpses, right? That you just get these, these glimpses of unity where in some sense, you're not separate from the totality of all existence. And it's also something we, we talked about in our Cosmic Consciousness episode. Then there's my experience rock climbing where I really lost track of everything. And in, in, in some sense, I became one with everything and therefore lost track of everything else as separate because I was one with the rock and I really didn't even know it much like happens with meditation until I came out of it. It's only when you find it missing again, that glimpse that you had, that you realize, ah, oh, it was right there. I touched it and, and you, you wish you could get back to it. And I've actually, I've actually experienced through Locke Kelly, who was interviewed by Thomas McConkie the the fastest access to it I've ever had by just a simple question that Locke Kelly asked. And so I know it's possible to get access to that through experiences in nature, through meditation, and through that question, and probably in other ways too. And so those moments that those that's what that's what we're chasing here in contemplation, right? Is to have access to the divine here and now in the present, and in this place. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I think that's really what Chris and I talk about all the time, is how powerful a teacher experiences. And and these minute passing experiences can have such an effect on you as to transform you completely in a moment. And, And that's the power of contemplation and why we need to really strive to find moments where we can contemplate the the depth and 
and breadth of God's love for us as manifested in his creations, in us, in our brothers and sisters. Um, Travis, I've been wanting to say this since the beginning, but you've got this Bruce R. McConkie voice that just conveys authority. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It is. It's this really deep, awesome voice, and, and it just it puts me in a trance. It's awesome. Um, when you were speaking... Can I, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Can I share a quote? So there's something Travis said when you said that we once we have one of these experiences that we can't even look at each other in the same way anymore, it reminded me of a very famous quote that's often misattributed to Nelson Mandela, because in his inaugural speech, he was quoting Marianne Williamson, who is the source of this quote. And it reads, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We're all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And now that I read that, I realize it's not even the quote that I meant to share, and it still fits. Travis, maybe you can help me remember the quote I was really searching for. It may have been from Lewis, the one that says that, that the people that we snub are, are gods. And that if we realize that, that we might act differently yeah Do you know the quote yeah not uh yeah lewis lewis uh, said something to that effect very very much both are apropos yeah now you know when we talk about contemplation right this is this is a greek idea right i mean it's a greek word well contemplation is is the latin word right it comes from to sit in the middle of a templum or a template Right, and this is what the ancient diviners would do. You know, is there for, for the, you know, for the ancient world, the way you had contact with God and how He revealed Himself to you was through signs and and uh, you know different things like that. So you could you you sacrifice an animal and you'd look at its liver, or you would observe the way the chi- you'd throw out chicken feed and watch how the chickens were feeding and and the augurs and so forth would interpret this. The templum was was a, a, a square. You'd have the cardalo and the decumanus. You'd have these two main divisions, an x-axis and a y-axis, and you'd sit at the middle of it. And then you would watch, you know, you'd sketch out an area on the ground, and then you would watch and see, you know, how the birds flew or what happened to these different quadrants. And that's how you would interpret um, God's will for you. And so that's the origin of, of, of the word contemplation. You know, we have a similar sort of idea in consideration. Right, which a uh, sidereal we know is you know referring to the stars. Uh, so it's to do something with the stars, right? We look and try and get ourselves in alignment with the divine will before we act. Um, the Greek word was theoria, which is observation. So contemplation is you're sitting there observing nature, waiting for a sign from God. Uh, contemplation is is what we do. Theoria is is, is the same thing. We, we try to get in a state where our minds 
are observing, where our minds are watching, where our minds are focused, where we're looking inward, where we're looking at, you know, outward, not at small things, but at big things. Like we talk about, um, you know, looking at nature, trying to see the connections there. Plotinus gives us a spiritual exercise that illustrates his uh, ideas here and his uh, views on how this works. He says, imagine the entire universe. Hold it as clearly and distinctly in your mind as you possibly can. See the whole cosmos as if it's inside an unimaginably vast transparent sphere. Visualize our sun and the stars in our sky. Then picture all the living beings on the earth or in the sea. Observe them calmly. Call to mind the limitlessly vast supreme intelligence who created this universe. Ask it to enter your awareness, bringing with it all the divine forces that exist inside it. Notice that the supreme being and all its divine energies and all the creatures and objects and the worlds it has created exist together in seamless unity. Imagine the supreme's being unlimited power and awareness attending to all infinity. Now, bring this vision inside yourself, as if you are that all-pervading supreme intelligence. Hold the entire cosmos and all its powers and all its creatures inside your own all-pervading awareness. Then let go of the, of the visual images you've been imagining. Simply let all the scenes you've been visualizing dissolve completely. Instead, focus only on the living reality of the all-pervading cosmic intelligence who is silently present. Don't allow any sense of separateness to enter your awareness. Just immerse yourself totally in the divine presence. Surrender yourself completely to the supreme being who at this very moment is holding you in its perfect unitary awareness. The supreme intelligence is totally present in this moment, and there is no distinction between uh, whatever between it and you. Mentally saluting the supreme being, shift your awareness back to your physical body in this physical room, in this physical universe. And open your eyes. Wow, I loved that. Boy, you know that may as well have been a guided meditation. I caught, I caught my breath. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think if you had been reading it as a guided meditation, you would have taken it slower. I realized that wasn't your intention. I might have to record that and and upload it with the podcast. That's that's incredible. How anyone listening to that can't have the same sense of connection with divine that Latter-day Saints do when they read scriptures is beyond me. Like, to me, that was a spiritual exercise, just like you introduced it. When you went through the ladder of, or ranking of, you know, intelligences from the one down to the intellect, intelligences, the soul, the world soul, and so forth, and that connection, you know, that we should recognize when we read, you know, for instance, Abraham, the book of Abraham, and the intelligences that that were before the world was. And as you're reading that, I'm just connecting to that, that same idea. Yeah. And it brings to mind our, again, our conversation on cosmic consciousness. That's it right there. I felt it. And, and the idea that we get through this, you know, through the Greek tradition that, that is most valuable to me is this focus on awareness and this focus on being able to train your mind. You know, when we look at the spiritual exercises that Philo and others record, I mean, these are things like studying. These are things like conversing one with another. They are meditating. They are 
ways of overcoming, they're so pertinent to us because we live in a world of distraction where our minds have such a hard time focusing and going inward. We, our minds are trained. They look for distraction. We carry our phones around with us all the time. And, we, and so when we get a moment to be bored, we pull out our phone. A hundred years ago, you just sat there and thought. You would maybe read a book, and a book's completely different because it's going to have an extended argument. You can pause and still be uh, let your mind go and let it wander, and it provokes thought, which is not what happens when we pick up our phone. And so I love I love some of the uh, you know traditions of of fasting in other religions where you know I was listening to an Eastern Orthodox. Uh, uh, scholars saying fast from technology, and we've we've actually had this in our religion also. I mean, right, fast from these things and take your mind away from them. And this is what Plotinus is really trying to get us to do. If you and and to start out, you just have to start by forcing yourself into this sort of a situation. You have to go for a walk without your phone, and then just um, you know let yourself think. You have to maybe sit in the tub and, and just let yourself be bored and not be afraid of that. And then try and focus your mind on a question, on an idea. You know, this is what we do during the sacrament. When we sit down and we're quiet and we just focus on the images, on the bread, on the water, on the coverings, on, you know, different ideas like this. This is one of the basic techniques of meditation, is to just hold an image in your mind and look at it and then try to go past the image. Well, Travis, thanks for, thanks for bringing that up and thanks for distinguishing between looking at the phone and reading a book. There's a big difference there. And Travis, I, I know you and I have talked about your own experience. I would love for you to share with us some of the experiments in intentional living or in contemplation that you've been performing in your own life by leaving the phone aside. I've had trouble reaching you lately because of it. Yeah, I I have a mind that, you know, and I think we probably all do. I don't think I'm terribly unique in this, but um, that's so prone to distraction that I have to just concentrate. I, put, I have my phone on do not disturb almost all, all day. And, uh, and then I'll just pull it out, you know, typically in the morning and in the evening to check messages and, and do this sort of thing, because otherwise my mind just is distracted and stays in, in, on this very, very shallow level. And I've been, I was lucky enough to grow up when phones weren't a thing, right? I mean, a lot of us grew up when you know, you would go for long walks and you would go camping and you would spend hours out, you know, days or weeks out in, out in solitude and with, with no distractions. And that's when your mind really gets shaped. And that's really when the depth of character can be formed that's, uh, that's uniquely you, that's not, you know, just shaped by the, by the passing fads that we're getting on social media and so forth. And more than that, it's, it's the ability to concentrate. It's the ability to sink into a book and read for hours and hours and be able to grasp and wrestle with an idea for a long time and be able to tease out its different ramifications, how it interacts with other ideas, being able to grasp and hold it 
for more than just a few minutes, even for hours, and you lose yourself, and then your your mind just works on a completely different level, and these things become ingrained in you. And then from that, again, this is a spiritual exercise. From that, you can learn to train your mind to be able to focus inwards. And a lot of times we have times in our life that facilitate this. When you are thrown to your knees in prayer, that's when you really have the opportunity to seek and to learn and to focus and to go inwards and to try and connect to God. As Neil A. Maxwell said, the extremity of man is the opportunity of God. A lot of times we need these situations that we desire something, we want something, that that helps us. We can sit down and do more than a perfunctory prayer. We can sit down there and plead and use all of our mental energy, all of our focus, and, uh, and look towards God, and that's when God can touch us. You know, the Doctrine and Covenants tells us, reach out to me when I am reaching out to you. And that's what we have to be aware of. And that's the idea of contemplation. We put ourselves in a state where we are observing, where we are focused. Uh, Plotinus talks about the choir master, how if we're looking towards God, the choir master, the choir and all har- everything sings in harmony. But when we start getting distracted, everything goes to chaos. Travis, you talk about these states or these opportunities that we have to connect in contemplation and how in our modern world we're, we're so distracted all the time. And it's usually by our phones, this handheld device that's a blessing and a curse. You know, today we see that there's these inventions that are trying to artificially put us back into states that we used to just by um, the quantity of opportunity have to contemplate. We used to have those all the time. Like you said, we'd go camping for the weekend, we're disconnected. Boom, we connect with nature. We just don't have those anymore. And in modern society, we're inventing things like sensory deprivation tanks where you lay in salt water for an hour and you don't feel or hear anything to force that state of boredom and relaxation that precedes the opportunity to have a contemplative experience. When in reality, we don't need that. As as cool as that might be, I've never experienced it. I think I'd like to try it someday. But as cool as that might be, it's really more about just taking advantage of the opportunities right in front of us to put aside that which distracts us and put ourselves in, in the right state of mind to be able to contemplate the world, God, nature, ourselves, existence, being, everything. We can't do that unless we rid ourselves of the distraction. My understanding is for those uh, who are first-timers in these what are they called? Sensory deprivation tanks. I, I myself would like to try it too. You're not even allowed. They won't even let you do the full session the first time because people just do not know what to do. They they don't know how to be with themselves, right? Just without any sensory input. I myself find myself craving silence, craving darkness. There's silence, right? There's a if nothing else, there's the refrigerator humming. There's uh, there's background noise. There's lights. Riley, you and I have talked about being out there, whether it's out in, in the wilderness or my own experience out in the middle of the ocean, and to be able to see that that panoply of stars that you know that Travis mentioned from in his quote from the Merchant of Venice. I love that play, by the way. We just don't have those opportunities 
as frequently without seeking them. We have to go out of our way. We have to be able to, you know, to to take not well, not take the opportunity, but to make the opportunity. We have to be able to make the opportunity for ourselves. And that means a Facebook fast or a technology fast or leaving the phone behind. And so I, I really appreciate you sharing that, Travis. Well and if and if you can, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, how exercise science has showed that even just a minute or two of high intensity exercise can actually change the way your whole metabolism works. Um, the same way we we don't have to think, okay, I need an hour to meditate. If you can try and just recenter yourself as often as you can, you know, whether you're at a stoplight, whether it's just you've just come home from work and you're sitting out in the car for a few minutes, all of these things are little things that will help. Now, this idea of, of doing like sensory deprivation actually has a very long, uh, you know, long pedigree. In fact, the ancient Greeks did this also. They would use caves. You had a guide who would, uh, his name was the, was, Phila, was the Philarchos, which is the coolest title ever, the Lord of the Lair. And uh, he would take you in and guide you and make sure that uh, you know, you had this uh, this experience went right in the right way for you. But yeah, you would be you'd be in in a cave for extended periods of time, and like you say, Christopher, that that you have to build up to this. Plotinus actually has some beautiful passages on, you know, when the mind first starts reaching these stages, it's weak, and how you have to work and things you have to do to take care of it to make sure that uh, you can, you know, I mean, there's because it, it it can be very difficult these these intense spiritual experiences. Well, I mean, that's the idea behind the four who go into the garden. Right, the part of this episode in, in the Talmud and the Tosefta where you have, you know, the four rabbis who go into the garden, Azai, Zomar, Achar, and Benakiva, right? One of them goes into this part of this or orchard, which is the origin, origin of our word paradise. And, uh, you know, the first one, uh, Azai, I think, uh, dies, and then Zoma goes crazy, and then Achar cuts down all the plants in the garden. And then Akiva, they say he enters in peace and he left in peace. The idea is that, you know, these spiritual experiences are something you have to build up to. And you have to recognize them for what they are. And, you know, I mean, we see, you know, I think, you know, this idea that the one guy tore down the garden, you know, they, they interpret that as becoming a heretic. And I think we see this in our tradition where Brigham Young says, pray that you never see an angel because everybody who sees an angel apostatizes sometimes these spiritual experiences can be overwhelming, but if we build up to them and if we take the time and realize that our life, that religion should not be, you know, a set of exercises that we do for the sake of the exercises themselves, right? If we, if we follow the commandments for the sake of the commandments without, without seeing what they're pointing towards, if we're taking sins out of our life, but not realizing the point of that, all we're doing is like taking a lamp and we're just polishing the globe of the lamp until it's pure and shiny without ever lighting the lamp and making it so that the light can flow out and illuminate things. And that's what we have to do with our life and realize that that's the point of it, that we are here to purify ourselves in order to be filled with light. And I think the whole summary of, of Plotinus and the ancient Greek uh, tradition can be summed up again in, in, in the Doctrine and Covenants, where it says, the eye single to the glory of God comprehends all things. That when we focus and when we have our mind set 
on God and the ways of God, then that's when we get true enlightenment, and that's when our actual psyche, our body, everything changes once you can reach these contemplative states. Um, your body chemistry changes and it transforms your whole life and the way you see other people and the way you interact on a daily level with all the experiences you have. That reminds me of a, of a quote from Joseph Smith that I, I know we wanted to share. But before we go into that, I want to bring us back to that moment where you said that we can start small, right? That it, it really starts with a friend of mine taught me any breath any one breath that you focus on is a meditation. My meditation practice every morning is 20 minutes. But at the same time, I often, whether it be at a light, as you said earlier, Travis, or usually almost always before I actually pray, you know, let's say we're all at the table and we're about to have a prayer, you know, say grace, thank Heavenly Father for, for the, the food that's before us. And I've taught my whole family to just first take a deep breath or three, two or three breaths, right? Anytime you stop and notice your breath, that's a meditation. One breath. You can do it right now. Breathe in, breathe out. And that's a meditation. And that's a start. And that's a really good start. How about that quote? Well, I, I just want to jump in and I want to offer my support for that exact theme that you brought up, that exact practice. I was sitting on a ski lift today. I told you earlier I went out for a couple hours. And one of the things that happens when you're riding on a ski lift is occasionally someone, you know, falls getting on or getting off and they stop the lift. And sometimes it's two seconds or sometimes a California stoplight type thing where it never really completely stops. Other times you're sitting there for 10 minutes. Just depends on the severity of the, the accident, right? And I was riding up the slowest lift on the whole mountain, just trying to get to the place where I was going to meet a friend. I got about a third of the way up, and we had one of these stoppages. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought, you know, 10 seconds, we'll be get, getting going again. Well, it turned into, you know, maybe seven, eight minutes. And about halfway through that, I realized, this is a gift. You know, I'm on the lift with a couple other people. It was a four-chair, and they were kind of on one end, and I was on the other. But nevertheless, they weren't talking, and I wasn't talking, and I thought, this is a gift. And so I did exactly as Christopher outlined, and I just started bringing intention to my breathing. And one breath turned into four, turned into 30, turned into about three minutes of just deep, intentional, intense breathing and attention and observation. It was pure contemplation. I was awake to bird sounds. I could feel the subtle bouncing of the chair in the breeze. I could hear the the uh, scrub oak branches rubbing together. I could hear the breathing of the people that were riding up with me. And it was awesome. It, it reset everything for me for the day to the point now where I, I became aware of everything going on around me for the next few hours. And it was, it was an incredible experience. And it lasted all of three minutes. So you don't need 20 minutes, you don't need an hour, you don't need days of contemplation to figure this out. A single breath, as Christopher said, can be a meditation. You know, just before we started recording, I found myself out of sorts after just sort of a misunderstanding with, with my teenagers, and I decided to go for a walk, you know, and I, I walked and I actually came back from the walk, and I made the mistake of making a phone call on the walk although it was nice to talk to someone, 
to you know to to share my frustration but when i what i found what i found most helpful what i found most helpful in the end was coming back from my walk and still not feeling ready to go back inside and make things right you know i actually just stood at the end of my driveway and i focused on my breath and what showed up again just like for you riley were the birds and the breeze and the rustling of the leaves and that's how i found my center again and was able to go back in now i lost it again i had to i had to do it again later on you guys know when we talked before the before we hit record today that i had kind of fallen back into that place and between the time that we said um well let's get on skype and let's start recording i was able to to again center myself and it just takes a minute of presence of really being present because oftentimes we act heedlessly and that's the problem we're not contemplative we're not aware we're not present we're not centered and that makes all the difference in the world yeah and it's important to note that the more you do it the easier it becomes i hope so the uh, it's it's a matter of training you know gordon b hinckley always talked about faith like a muscle and at first i really didn't like that you know i didn't like that sort of analogy but but i've really come to see that that's act absolutely apt when you have not been exercising faith when you've not been putting energy into your into the spiritual level it's so hard to do it that muscles have atrophied and it just seems like it's overwhelming. You, you cannot reach the spiritual feats that you used to be able to. And so you have to just start working out. You have to just start taking control of your mind, taking control of your whole body. And there's, there's some ways that, that help. So in psychology, with certain, you know, certain types of mental illness, they'll tell you to take a raisin and put it in your mouth and then just roll the raisin around on your tongue and see how it feels and just think about that you're getting the texture you're getting the flavor you're it's something to focus and center on i shoot uh, competitively which is actually a very zen sort of exercise and uh, a friend of mine who's who's an olympic shooter told me he says that during a match you know when he needs to center he'll pull out if he's shooting air guns then he'll pull out a pellet and he'll just kind of rub it in his fingers and look at it and try to observe all the little nicks and uh, things going on and or pull out his pocket knife and look at the kind of chips and things it's got it's something to just focus your mind and help you get centered again and these physical things can be real aids i mean we see these we see this with with uh, the tra- trajectory of joseph smith's spirituality you know where at the beginning he, he focused he, he utilized uh, you know seer stones uh your thumb and that sort of thing very much more towards the beginning of his prophetic career than he did towards the end. And, uh, you know, anything to build up this sort of focus and uh, locus of attention is, is, uh, is important and, you know, whatever it takes. Travis, earlier you brought up the definition of contemplation as, as kind of a combination word, a um, cone templum or some manner or form of that uh, construction. And you had a, a quote from Plotinus you wanted to share, kind of related to that. Why don't you go ahead and do that now? Yeah, so 
the very end of the Enneads, which is Plotinus's, you know, work, it's, it's put together by a student, but it's uh, what we have of him. He's talking about, you know, the person who has had this vision. And he says, you're not actually having a vision, you're recognizing a unity. He says, he has become the unity, nothing within him or without, inducing any diversity. No movement now, no passion, no outlooking desire. Once this ascent is achieved, reasoning is in abeyance, and all intellection, and even, to dare the word, the very self. Caught away, filled with God, he has in perfect stillness attained isolation. All the being calmed, he turns neither to this side nor to that, not even inwards to himself. Utterly resting, he has become very rest. He belongs no longer to the order of the beautiful, he has risen beyond beauty. He has overpassed even the choir of the virtues. He is like one who, having penetrated the inner sanctuary, leaves the temple images behind him, though these become once more first objects of regard when he leaves the holies. And then he ends, This is the life of gods, and of the godlike and blessed among men, liberation from alien things that beset us here, a life taking not pleasure in the things of the earth, but in the flight of the alone to the alone. And I find that that temple imagery, that sanctuary where you're where you're contemplating images and so forth, and then you go into this state where you leave all that behind, and that's so much what we have in the temple. You know, we we, we know that you know when we need recentering, when we need to get better focus, we can go to the temple, and we do this ritual that focuses on drawing our minds to physical things. You know, physical touches, you know, you know, symbols and so forth. And then we go beyond these to the meaning of them. And then we pass uh, through the veil and go into the celestial room where we're just alone with God. It's silent. We're praying. We're meditating. And uh, we're able to take what we've learned. And again, the temple itself is a representation of a descent into the world and an ascent back to God. And we reenact that. And it gives us a way to focus and achieve this sort of meditation in a, in a really beautiful and meaningful way. So, Travis, would you agree with this idea that the temple is sort of a mental map? It's not the end all by itself, but it's sort of a mental map on how we take these, this same process of descent and ascent and apply it into our individual lives. So where we have the templum as a physical artifice, a building, the house of God. In contemplation, that's a very individual practice. It's very interior. And the temple becomes the sacred space within each of us, within the heart. And so when we retreat into the temple, we retreat into this inner sanctuary. And it's the, it's the contemplator's temple of the heart that sort of corresponds to that physical building and the things that we do within it. And it's within that that interior of the heart that the messages of the God, God's God, the Spirit, are really observed by us and interpreted within. And we do the same thing when we go out into nature. That's a sort of a temple too. And we're observing the elements and the occurrences within that sacred space. So how, how would you relate those two experiences of being within the physical building of the temple and then perhaps experiencing contemplation as an individual spiritual practice. 
Yeah, the you know the the temple is is the place where God resides. That's what we that's the way we think of it. And when the New Testament, you know, when when when, when we're told our body is a temple, then we're really supposed to think of it the same way, right? This is this is the the housing that we go inside of to communicate with God. Right? We we recreate um, in the temple. We recreate our journey. Through the fall, you know, we're told to imagine ourselves as Adam and Eve as we go through this. And we act this out and we interiorize this. And so we do this in the temple. And so we can take this out of the temple and realize that our body is a temple and that we have to go inside. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the old Zen saying that a, that a house is made of, of wood and bricks, but we live in the emptiness. You know, we live in the space inside. And that's what that's what we're looking for here is to bring this inside and be able to go inside ourselves and uh, and communicate with God and be able to withdraw from the cares of the world, which again we talk about with the temple, right? We leave the outside world behind and we go in to commune with God. And as we do that, we learn to be able to do that on our own, also inside of our own, you know, inside of our own bodies, going, you know, communicating our souls with God. Travis, the, the, the line that you finished with of the, the flight of the alone to the alone reminded me of the end of the divine comedy, right? Of Dante. Yeah. What would, would you say something about that? Yeah, boy, the divine comedy is huge and maybe, uh, you know, maybe that's a topic, you know, to get into another day, but but we do see in the Divine Comedy, you know, this descent and then ascent, right? He goes through hell and he comes up and he becomes a new person. And again, this is, this is what happens in the temple. I, this is going back to another idea that, uh, that we didn't really address here. You know, in the temple, you go to the basement of the temple and you have the baptistry, right? Where you descend underground and you're, you have an image of dying, right? And then you come up as a new person, and, and not just uh, underground, but into into the waters, the the waters that that are the same waters that we see in Genesis, right? Into chaos. Yeah, I mean, death is 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 the ultimate entropy, right? It is chaos taking over, and then we're resurrected, we're brought forth through the the power of God, and come up as a new man in baptism, and so that's where the that's where the temple begins, right? That's the that's the first ordinance that culminates in the in in the highest ordinance, in which we're united in a union that that lets us become, you know, close to God. And I love I love how we do it in the church, where where we have communal gatherings that that let us come together and still be on your own, you know, this to to contemplate God. You know, the sacrament is this way where everybody comes together and it helps to have everybody there because we have a, an organization, a ritual. And, uh, but then during the time that the sacrament prayer is being uttered and the sacraments being passed, we're completely silent. We withdraw into our own minds and the same in the temple, right? We have a, a, a communal sort of ritual and, you know, where we're all joined in this. And then we go into the presence of God and are alone with him. And I think that's a, a pattern for how we can live our lives. 
Well, that seems like a great place to stop, guys. Uh, having mentioned the temple and talked about the inner sanctuary and how we can kind of develop our own contemplative practice within as a mirror of the temple. Travis, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective about classical contemplation, and we look forward to having you again. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>